Uh, hello, I am Matt. Um, we are carrying on our series, Promise Keeper, and today's promise is from the Old Testament, and it's from the book of Chronicles. Now, you might say, what is the book of Chronicles? Um, well, uh, it's actually from two Chronicles, Second Chronicles, which I'm going to drop some serious theology on you now, okay? So if you're new to church, you might, this, might be, this might be tough. It's from two chronicles, which implies the existence of one chronicles. And so you might say to me, Matt, okay, so there are two books called chronicles. And I would say, no, there aren't. There's only one. They just ran out of paper. Is the truth. So is Chronicles is actually just one book. They just ran out of paper. Uh, scrolls weren't long enough back in the day to fit all of Chronicles into one book. Um, so uh, when we kind of talk about Chronicles, one, first Chronicles, second Chronicles, we kind of use it a little bit interchangeably. And essentially what the book does is take a whole bunch of stories from the rest of the Old Testament, um, stories about the kings, um, there's genealogy of people right from the beginning of the Bible, um, and we get a lot of stories of... Uh, essentially, uh, kings, leaders uh, being obedient to God, and we see the result of that being kind of um, beneficial for the people of God, and we see them prospering because of that. And it's essentially all these stories, um, we don't know who wrote it, it was written probably about 200 years after the Israelites had returned from their exile. So a um, little bit of history. The Israelites at one point get exiled from their homeland. They're kind of stuck off in Babylon, and they're very sad to not be back in Israel. They've been um, been able to come back, and it's about 200 years after that. Um, the kind of point of the book is looking back at these stories um, and kind of going, oh, we had some great moments, actually, things to be encouraged about. But, crucially, none of these kings, none of these leaders, none of these people um, were the Messiah. None of them were Jesus. So what they're doing, the point, I think, um, slash the Bible Project thinks, um, of this book is, and remember... Remember, shout out to the Bible Project, Tim Mackey, I love you. Um, now remember this, this is going to come in handy later. What we're doing is we're looking back on what God's done in order to look forward in hope. So um, essentially uh, what happens is by the time we get to Second Chronicles, the second part, King David is long gone. His son Solomon is the king and he has this great little moment where you might, have, might remember if you grew up in church where God says, okay, you can ask me for one thing. And Solomon says, I want wisdom. And God goes, yes, great. That's the right, the right answer. You didn't ask for a Ferrari, haven't invented them yet. That's really good. You didn't ask for things. You didn't ask to you know, be super successful. You have for wisdom. That's a great idea. Here you go. And so from there, he then starts to build the temple. So uh, basically, Solomon's dad, David, has had this big plan, wanting to build this temple for God, a place where the people of God are going to come and uh, meet with God in his presence, where God's spirit is going to live and where people are going to be able to come and worship. And finally, Solomon gets to do this. So kind of the first few chapters of Second Chronicles... Solomon is, there's these incredibly intricate um, instructions on how to build this thing, this big temple. Um, I, I can be honest, it's not enormously riveting at some times, but maybe if you're uh, an architect, maybe, you know, you like hearing about cubits and things like that and all the different fixtures and furnishings. Um, but it's incredibly detailed because it's an incredibly important thing and it's hugely symbolic. Um, and... Uh, once we kind of get to the point where the temple's built, they have this big dedication service. Uh, and this is what um, chapter 7 says. It says, 
When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer uh, and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. Now, previous to this, um, they've had this big dedication service. Fire's fallen from heaven and consumed the um, sacrifices and the presence of God has fallen and it's been so overwhelming for the people there. People have been so overcome by um, the, the realness of God being there with them that the priests, the kind of, you know, the people um, running things around the temple can't even enter into the temple, into the, to the holy space because God's presence is so overwhelming. So we've had this incredible mountaintop experience with God. And God says to Solomon that evening, he says, When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will hear they, their land. Um, now, essentially, what's happening is... Um, and I don't want to get too formulaic about this, but we see kind of um, from that passage a few things that um, for God to bring healing to the land, to see revival, to see life brought back, some things that um, we're called to do and some things that God says he promises to do in response. So um, firstly, we've got that uh, our action, we need to... Oh. Uh, humble ourselves. So what does it mean to humble ourselves? C.S. Lewis says famously um, that uh, being humble isn't to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. So turning our eyes to God. And actually, um, that's a lie. C.S. Lewis never said that. Fun fact. He always gets misquoted as saying that. He says something kind of like that. Um, focusing, turning to God rather than ourselves. You want to pray and seek God's face. Um, and then finally, we want to turn from our wicked ways, from our sin, from the things that we're doing wrong, where um, we've kind of, uh, one of the, the, the ways of explaining sin is like an, an archer missing the mark with an arrow. So that's what we um, are called to do. And then in return, God promises to hear from heaven, to forgive our sin, and to heal the land. Now, in the passage prior to this one, appreciate I'm going quite heavy on the Bible. Don't worry, we'll... we'll, we'll, we'll We'll flex it out eventually. I don't know what that means. Um, and so uh, what happens is Solomon says this to God prior to the dedication of the temple and seeing this amazing uh, kind of move of God's spirit in the temple when it's dedicated. He says, but will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. So some um, humbling of himself there. Yet, Lord my God, give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. He's turning his face to God. He's praying. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said you'd put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel, when they pray, pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Turning from sin. And um, what, uh, so as we see, we've got those kind of, um, if we get the next slide, all of those we've kind of see. So we see what God has done um, in kind of when the te temple is dedicated and promises when it comes to the future with famine or um, kind of struggles that the nation of Israel might have. And we see how... Um, Solomon has, has kind of done his part and the people of God have done their part. 
um, what uh, kind of a theologians might say is, uh, and, and rightly, this is a promise to specifically to the ancient people of uh, people of Israel, right? So we don't we don't get to just transplant this on and go right. If we do these three things, everyone in the houses of parliament will link arms and start singing "Shine, Jesus, Shine," and just everyone's going to become a Christian just like that. That's not that's not quite how it works, okay? But what I will say is, um, all of these things that we're called to do are totally seen the whole way throughout Scripture. They're all things that we are absolutely, definitely called to do, that Jesus encourages us to do. And so um, they're things that we're going to do, okay? Um, so, I'm just, I've got terrible handwriting, haven't I? <laughs> With that in mind, we've just kind of looked at um, an ancient nation which is a very long time ago and probably a very different culture to ours today. So uh, what I'd like to do is do a bit more of that um, kind of looking back so we can look forward with hope. So what could that look like to see the land healed? Um, now, this is the part of the talk I'm very excited about because I'm going to talk about Wales for a bit. Uh, and if you know me, you'll know it's a subject I'm very passionate about. I'm... Um, I sound like a posh English boy when I speak English, which is a shame. I speak first language Welsh. Did most of my life in Welsh since I was 18. Um, so it's really sad for me that I don't sound Welsh when I speak English. But anyway, um, so this is going to be uh, kind of a seven-part series now. Um, don't worry, there's going to be a break after each four-hour section. So I uh, probably just want to phone into work now, just let them know. Um, but seriously, I want to go back to the 1900s, beginning of uh, the 20th century. Uh, we've just had the Industrial Revolution. Um, we have seen enormous societal change post that industrialization. We have had kind of the birth of modern sociology and psychology. And there is a real uh, kind of uh, spirit in society of kind of feeling like actually... We've kind of completed the God thing now. We actually get why our minds jump to that. We understand what's happening. We don't really need that anymore. But in the midst of that, in 1904, we saw one of the most influential moves of God um, in the history of the UK, definitely in Wales. Um, and that was kind of known commonly now as the Welsh Revival. Um, now, there are all sorts of people involved with that um, who, who saw amazing things happen. But one of the main people was a young guy called Evan Roberts. And I really believe that his story and the story of many of the other people around him um, is a great example of us humbling ourselves, praying and seeking God's face, and turning from our um, wicked ways. Um, so I'm going to take us through a bit of that story, um, and I will try and keep it as short as I can because I get excited, and there's loads of amazing stories that I like to tell. But I will, I will keep this short. But anyway, in the year 1900, there's a young man, uh, Evan Roberts, who's about 20, 21, uh, lives in South Wales, a uh, small kind of little town called Lucha, just outside Swansea, uh, kind of central West Wales, well, south, the middle of South Wales, just about west. And uh, he is an uneducated young man. He is a miner, works down the mines, um, and he basically one year just has this real drive to pray for revival uh, in Wales, in his home country. And so what he does is he starts these groups, he calls them prayer circles. Of, at that time, it was just young men. Um, there's some amazing stories of women doing awesome stuff, um, which a couple of which I'll get to later. Um, too. But at that point, it's just men. And he's gathering them together to pray for revival, to contend for the nation of Wales, um, uh, which I love. Uh, and... Uh, it's four years of doing that and nothing in particular happens. 
It just carries on and on and on, and they pray and they pray and they pray. And um, this is a young man who's praying for four hours each morning for his country before then going to work as a minor. And when he eventually goes to Bible college, he's really worried about it because he's worried he won't have enough time to pray anymore, which is like, whoo, okay. Um, bless him. Uh, and uh, eventually uh, he's carrying this on and he's at home one day and he has what he calls this transfiguration vision. And he has a vision that he believes is from God. And it's a picture of a check, like a bank check. Many of you have never... It, who here has never cashed in a check? Can I see some hands? Anyone? It's quite a lot of people. Times they are a-changing. Um, <laughs> but it's a check. And it is a check for 100,000 souls. For people. And he believes, that's God telling him, 100,000 people in Wales are going to find faith, are going to meet Jesus to meet their creator and so he's obviously very excited and he hears of another meeting in Newquay which is further west in Wales where um, a preacher there was trying to get young people excited about faith and so he's in this meeting and he says kind of similar crowd of people who've been really praying and contending for revival um, and he basically says to them right what has God done in your life and all these uh, men are going uh, famously saying well you know the Lord is so great and powerful, truth be told. Oh, he's so powerful. No, no, no. About you. What's God done in your life? Well, in the scriptures, the Lord Jesus says, no, 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 no. You. And it's a young woman, Flory Evans, who goes on to have an incredible um, life as a missionary, doing amazing things. You can look her up, read her Wikipedia page. She stands up and she says, this is all in Welsh, so she says, Rydwi'n carrier glwyddiasi am holl galon. I love the Lord Jesus with all my heart. And it's from that moment. What's happening? It's all right, Vic. And it's from that moment that there's this massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit in that room. And there's like 20 of them. And Evan Roberts, the guy who's back in Lucha, I'm sorry, there's some real Welsh geography for you here. Like, I, if you get nothing else from this. Um, he hears about this, and so he gets excited, and he wants to gather together young people. So he gathers together 17 young people in his church, and he says, what happened there can happen here. And the Holy Spirit just, just turns up. I appreciate it. If you're new to church, if you're figuring this out, you're going to be like, what the chuff? Um, but essentially, um, and I, I pray you'll experience this yourself, but essentially it's that um, of God's being real in the room of that presence of God, of being um, connected with our creator, seeing literal miracles, healings, um, relationships restored, all sorts. And to cut a long story short, I've already made it quite long. Um, from there on, all these incredible things happen. So this is all entirely true. It's all um, documented. Yes, it's a long time ago, but it's modern enough that we actually have evidence of it all happening. Um, in fact, we can see um, the local press, so the Western Mail, so the newspaper that I grew up reading about rugby in, in Cardiff, would have um, these revival diaries. So this was such a big deal. So many people were coming to faith that local newspapers would have like tallies of how many people had become Christians. Like genuinely, this is totally real. So. Um, the religious, so this is just like in the normal newspaper. Um, and uh, Evan Roberts, who's the guy in the middle, uh, one of the things I love about him, he was so humble. He wouldn't, he wouldn't stay behind for photographers to take pictures of him. So the newspapers only have drawings of him because they had to send people to church meetings to draw him so that they could put something in the newspaper. Um, and uh, so, for instance, in one little town, Kilvernith, 
uh, mining community which had had the biggest mining disaster in Wales had lost 297 men and boys down the colliery, um, died in an explosion. Um, in, a, in one year, in 1904, they saw, i actually written it down somewhere here, 721 people um, become Christians in a town where the population was about 3,000, 3,500. Um, uh, in total, well over 100,000 people in Wales became brand new Christians uh, in a time when the population was about 2 million, probably just under. There are stories of, um, of course, this is a time where uh, it was expected in a family that the man was the breadwinner, that a man's job was to go to work, and the, the, the wives, the mothers would stay at home and look after the home. I appreciate that's not how things are now, but that's the time that we're talking about. Um, and there are stories of families who weren't fed or clothed properly, and the men would meet Jesus, and all of a sudden you see these families who were just so much healthier. They were clothed properly. They were looked after. There are stories of people um, who weren't in church at all, weren't Christian. Christians at all, waking up in the middle of the night and just feeling like they had to go to church and they didn't know why, there was no real reason for them to, and finding faith. Um, there's stories of people turning from their sin, from their wicked ways. There's um, magistrates in loads of towns said they just didn't have anything to trial. So they're, they're genuinely, there were just no crimes being committed in all these places. Um, pubs were shutting down because no one was going. Local football teams stopped playing because nobody wanted to go and watch them anymore. People were just so busy um, with giving their lives to Jesus. Um, I sent, mentioned this is an industrial country. Mining was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, that or agriculture kind of a place that people worked in Wales in that time. And there are stories of the horses underground that pulled along the little carts with coal on them. The horses didn't understand their masters anymore. So the, the, the people down, down the coal mines couldn't control the horses anymore because they used to use so much vile language and scream and shout at them. Like This is entirely verified. The horses just didn't know what to do. They didn't understand them anymore. And miners would spend... would asked to come into work early so that they could have prayer and worship meetings in the mines. You could hear from, from the ground, from coming up from underground, the songs of all these people singing these Welsh hymns. And incredible, totally verifiable things happened in my home country. And um, it didn't just affect Wales. No, it, one of the things you could say, well, that was nice for them, for all these nice... Um, I, pretty much all probably white people in Wales at that time. But one of the incredible things about this that I love about it is the effect it's had on the rest of the world. So uh, somewhere, uh, one of the main uh, places it influences a different revival in the United States called the Zusa Street Revival, which is incredible multicultural um, movement of God among African-American, Latinos, um, and white Christians. It's had a big impact in South Korea. I have friends who are like, um, do church stuff for a living who are like big in Korea because South Koreans love Welsh people so much because of this. Um, it's had an impact China, India, all over the world and actually on the island of Britain, so in Wales, Scotland, England, um, they estimate that because of this move of God about a million people became Christians. And the thing is, I feel like you can go one of two ways when you hear stuff like that. So I'm sure some of you are hearing that and going, wow. Like Evan Roberts said, what happened there can happen here. Let's start some prayer circles. We're doing it now. Let's write. Let's, we're gonna, I'm doing four hours of prayer tomorrow morning. I'm not doing anything until I've wept over the state of the nation. Let's go. Come on, let's do it. All right? 
For some of you, and this is probably for most of my life, the camp that I've fallen into, go, oh my gosh, sure. That, that was nice. Like, that was great. It's really nice to hear that stories. But do I really believe that could happen again? Do I um, really think that there's much more to it than a lot of emotional hype? You know, basic sociology. Oh, people get excited about a thing and feel like they should join in. I, I don't really see the need for it. And um, the thing for me is, like I said, growing up in Wales, um, being known as the land of revivals, and I want to say this in the kindest, most gentlest way possible, you attract a lot of crazies. Um, and you get a lot of people who come to Wales. I am here, I have come to the land of revival. This is the new revival of God in Wales. All right, join the queue, there's a few others over there. But, you know, for me, growing up as a young Christian, become Christian as a teenager, the first time you hear someone comes from wherever off and they go, I've come, and this is the new revival. God has told me to come here because this is the new Welsh revival. It's happening again. And as a teacher, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is it. I, bet, I better get ready. I'm right, do my four hours praying. Here we go. Oh, this is it, right? Go to the meeting. Oh, kind of lift our hands and shout and get all excited. And there's emotional music. And then after a while, oh, has anyone actually um, become a Christian because of this? And like, oh, no. No, I don't think there has. And you, okay, well, maybe this is the warm up. God's just about to come and somebody else comes and he goes, I have come. This, the Lord has said, this is the moment. My meeting here now, this is the moment for revival. Okay, well, this guy I can get behind. And you do the whole thing again. There's lots of emotional music and shouting and weeping. And, and, and again, nothing happens. And it can be easy for us to have experiences like that and get cynical. And I think at times the kind of posture I've adopted in my heart has been, I don't, I don't really see the need for that stuff. Uh, there's loads that I can do myself. And it's not that I don't want to see my friends uh, come to know Jesus, have the relationship with God, uh, the knowledge of the, and the experience of the love of God that I've had. I want that, but you know, I can invite them to church. I can invite them on an alpha course. I can have a great chat with them about excuse me, um, about church or the Bible or whatever it is. I, I can do that. And I've seen some friends come to faith. I've seen some friends come along to church or deepen their relationship with God. Um, so why do we need God to heal the land? Uh, why can't we just carry on just, you know, bit by bit, by addition, we'll... You know, get a few more here and there. We'll, we'll, um, we'll do our social justice product projects like the, like the noise, like our stuff with Beloved, and that we, we can do it ourselves, right? And actually, like I said, that's been the camp that I've historically fallen into. Um, and for Israel, like we spoke about at the beginning, the reason they needed God to heal the land was, like Solomon speaks about, was when there's famines, you know, we need rains. When there's uh, wars with our enemies, we need victory. We need to stay safe. And so what does it look like for us? For me, I had a moment of lockdown that changed my perspective on this. And I want to be really, really clear here. Um, we are absolutely 100% called and required to act justly, to love mercy. There is stuff that we are called to do. Uh, and that is so clear throughout scripture when it comes to justice, 
uh, justice issues, social justice, serving the poor, standing up against inequality, discrimination, all these things. Um, I really want to be really clear. I'm not saying at all we don't need to do that. Um, it's just that the focus of what I'm about to say next is more on the side of what we need God to do, okay? So if you're kind of going, oh, I'm not sure I believe you mean that. A few months ago, we did a series called um, The Story of Justice. You can check it out on our, our YouTube channel, Woodlands Metro. So that's focusing more on what we're called to do. Um, but this particular talk is more about what we're asking God to do. You with me? You with me? Great. Um, but I, I came to a moment of understanding that there's some stuff that I can't just do, you know? And it was three words that I heard in lockdown that just broke something in my spirit. Uh, and those three words were, I can't breathe. And the image of um, George Floyd with a policeman's knee on his neck for two minutes and 53 seconds. And the realization and understanding that he wasn't even the first black man to die saying those words at the hand of a policeman. The realization that in that situation and in so many others, when it comes to inequality, to hunger, to uh, discrimination, to uh, all sorts of other things, it, it feels like if there was something we could just do, if we could just do this by ourselves as humanity, if we evolved and smart enough and uh, we've progressed so much, surely we'd have done a better job of it by now if it was just down, just down to what we do. But we haven't. And, and it's not just confined to the world either, in the church. You know, why would my uni housemate want to come to church with me if, um, when his dad was abused as a child, so much so that it's ruined his life? Why would my childhood best friend want to come on an alpha course when he was too afraid to tell me he was gay because he thought he knew what Christians would say? And um, don't worry about that one. In the end, it went really well. Still best friends. I'm seeing him this Tuesday, so that did go well in the end. But I know there's things where I have definitely got it wrong. You know, um, I'm part of the leadership team of this church, and I know there's times when I've um, spoken to people or said things that have made people feel not valued. Particularly, just to give one example, I know around the worship team, people have said to me, actually, like, you've just made me feel not good enough by the way that you've spoken, you know, in a, a practice or things like that. And I'm, I'm sure there'll be plenty of other examples of things where I, I actually, I know, yeah, that my, in my kind of shoes as part of the team here, I've actually let people down. I've not served people as I should. And um, the, I could finish this talk here and go, let's, let's all weep over the state of the world. And absolutely, there is a, there's a place for that. Um, but I don't think that's where God is, is calling us to stay. I'm not going to end like that. Because I really, <laughs> kind of weirdly, for me, I'm a very pessimistic person, naturally. And I find it very easy and natural to be pessimistic about what God is doing in our church, the church, the world. But very uncharacteristically for me, I have a very deep sense of hope at the moment uh, that I... I believe is from God about what he wants to do with us. And the whole Bible tells me that God is always moving in us. I want to just, uh, as we kind of come towards the end, I want to look at um, the book of Acts, which is kind of the story of the church um, post Jesus's resurrection. And so in the beginning, um, it says this. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? 
He replied, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What happens then is the, the church, the early church as it is there, the little tiny fragment of the people lock themselves away in prayer for days. And then it happens. The Spirit of God does come. And the church grows in a way that is so just odd to historians. It doesn't make any sense. Like, the church should not have grown that quickly. The only possible explanation is that people actually had seen the resurrected Jesus. There's no reason for all these people to sacrifice their lives, to lay down their lives for each other, for the sake of the gospel, of the good news of God. There's no other reason. And Jesus is still at work in that same way today. Um, I want to look at just a couple of really quick examples before we wind up in prayer. Um, one of the, the places that really encourages me, and you might not think of this place as a hotbed of Christianity, is Iran. So, um, his, you know, a long time ago, historically, there was a real um, Christian presence in Iran, but in the modern era, not so much. That's kind of disappeared um, to the degree that 40 years ago, there were only an estimated 500 Christians um, who had kind of Muslim heritage in Iran. Two years ago, uh, an estimate said that one million Christians um, are currently in Iran with Muslim heritage. Um, that, that, that doesn't happen without... God's spirit moving without God healing the land. And it's happened because people have humbled themselves. They've prayed and sought after God. And they've turned from the things that they've got wrong. Um, and one of the, the, the really incredible things that's happened is that um, people, uh, and you can, you can look this up, you know, search it online. People report um, having dreams and visions about Jesus, who are, who are not Christians at all, who are Muslims, having dreams and visions where Jesus comes to them and says, I want you to come and follow me. And these people, this isn't, maybe in some situations or cultures you could say, yeah, people are getting excited and everyone's become a Christian, so it probably should, it's probably the thing to do. It's not safe for them to do that. To, to convert from Islam to Christianity, to be a Christian in that culture is not, is not safe. People have, have died because of that. And people are making that choice. Something very, very real is happening. And that same Jesus that was uh, at work in the New Testament is the same Jesus who is the God who was at work in the Old Testament is still alive today and is doing incredible things. And um, one final little example, um, some of you may have heard, but I'm at this kind of <laughs> little Christian university in um, Kentucky in the States called Asbury University. Over the last few weeks, this has all been happening. Essentially, it's this um, little Christian university, and at the university, the students have two mandated chapel services a week. So um, you can probably imagine if it's a church service that you literally have to go to, it's not always the most lively, exciting, kind of um, faith-enhancing um, part of your week, and probably people aren't that hyped to be there. But um, uh, one of the things that happened was uh, a few weeks ago, it's kind of very quiet service, and the guy, it's called Zach, who gave the talk at that service, um, it says in his own words, I can't remember the exact words, but he's basically like, yeah, it was a below average talk. Like it, it like objectively wasn't, and you can look it up on YouTube and there's all these people, <laughs> really bad, people in the comments going, yeah, no, he's right. This isn't very good. <laughs> but what happens after he talks 
is all these, these students, uh, 19 of them, so two more than Evan Roberts had to start a revival, um, just go, oh, we, we just feel like we want to stay back and pray and worship for a little bit. Fast forward a couple of weeks, 100,000 people have come through that meeting place. And they've had all these stories, it's similar to the Welsh Revival, of people just feeling like, I need to just get up and go to the chapel. I don't really know why. Just feeling called to it. And there's stories of people's relationships being restored, um, who really hated each other. And the overwhelming um, story that's come out of it is the sense of peace that people have received. And I, I love, and, and loads of commentators have said this, but I love that in the most probably the most anxious generation ever. Um, the thing that God has done is just bring peace. And um, one of the ways I heard it described was the whole thing is um, uh, described as embarrassingly unorganized. Like it's just really bad. So like they have worse, it's been like 24 seven the whole time just going for, they ended it um, fairly recently because they want to say this needs to go out. And so there's all sorts of other stuff happening off the back of it now, but um, uh, it, it's really bad. <laughs> like, in terms of, like, if you were to judge it as, like, a show, it's pretty awful. They don't even have words. There's no, like, projectors with words. The musicians are, like, really, like, not very good. Um, but what's happened is, and, and what I found quite funny as well, is a lot of, like, big name, big name Christian speakers and musicians and worship leaders have come and been like, hey, you know, if you, if you, need, a, you need a hand, and they've just gone, no, 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 this 19-year-old's this really got it. It's, it's fine. And so people just being like turned away. No, 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 you just come and receive. And, and God, funnily enough, didn't need the flashiest lights or the best band or anything to basically be organized. He just needed people whose hearts were after him, who wanted to humble themselves, to pray and seek him and to turn from, um, turn from their mistakes, turn from their sin. And one of the things um, I heard they were doing, the worship team, before they go up to worship, they would just get in a room and they would just, they would just confess. They'd just go, oh, do you know, my heart isn't in the right place about this. And they'd spend some, sometimes spend up to an hour just in there, just going, oh, do you know, I haven't got this right, before then coming and ministering. And I love it. There's no celebrities. One of the things they keep on saying is the only celebrity there is Jesus. And what I love about it, nobody, um, if you really look really hard, you can find out who they are. But really, nobody actually knows who the leaders of this are. They're like, no, no one's second names have ever come out. There's no like famous worship. No one's making a career off the back of this. No one's heard of any of these people and no one will. Um, and God's used that. So what I uh, would love us to do is to take a bit of time to uh, humble ourselves, to pray and seek God and to turn from our mistakes, from our sins. And uh, one of the things... Actually, Philip pointed this out to me um, when I was going through this talk. What I love about God is um, turn from your wicked ways, that last bit, you know, turning from our mistakes, from our sin, from where we've missed the mark. It's not the first thing. Um, it's not that it's like, right, come on, what have you done wrong? Spit it out before you come and I'll do anything. Um, it's not like, right, we're going to go and come and pray for God to heal the land. So, guys, we need to think of some stuff we've done wrong. Uh, anyone? Anyone? Um, yeah, I think I was. I think I was maybe rude to Trisha in HR on Wednesday. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I ate the last packet of crisps without telling anyone else in the house. Uh, we don't have to do that. What we are asked to do first is to humble ourselves. It's just to come to God and say, "You are a lot bigger than me. You are the God of the universe." And um, don't get me wrong. 
I, I love that we have so many worship songs, songs we sing in church that are uh, very personal about me and God. But I think sometimes at the moment we're prone to missing the point that um, God is, is literal God. Uh, and it's a lot more powerful and um, uh, in, a, in the least negative way I can say possible, terrifying, uh, if you're with me. Um, and so we need to humble ourselves and, and pray and seek and say, Lord, what, what is it you're doing? What are you doing? Uh, what is the work you're doing in me, in the world? Uh, and from that place, sometimes God will speak to us and say, um, hey, I think you need to do right about this. I think you got this wrong. So um, I just want to invite the band up uh, just to be ready. That's okay. And like I said, I have this really um, weird, uncharacteristic thing happening in my life where um, my logical brain doesn't, I don't, I don't really get it um, because I'm so prone to being let down by um, people proclaiming some big thing is happening or whatever. Um, but I really genuinely believe um, for the church widely and for us at Metro that uh, God, God is wanting to heal the land. God is wanting to do something genuinely significant. Um, and I want to I shout out particularly, um, uh, I say, the young people, that's just all of you. Uh, I'm 29 now, so I'm, I'm just creeping out of that bracket. Um, uh, just a reminder, Evan Roberts was 26 when he led this enormous movement, which has impacted the whole world. And um, honestly, those of you, oh, I mean, all of you, but particularly 25 and under, um, how how difficult it is for you, yet at the same time, I look um, at the church here and there are so many of you that I, I'm just like, wow. Like, honestly, I'm, I know I, this is the kind of thing that you, it's helpful to say in a talk or whatever, but it's honestly so true. There's so many people, I'm like, wow. Your faith and your persistence and your integrity and honesty is... And, and that, that is the thing that God is seeking after. He's not seeking after a better light show or for us to work harder. And the fear, the temptation can be with a talk like this is we go, right, we need to, right, we're going to seek God and we're going to press it. We're going to do more stuff. We're going to work harder and then we'll see the kingdom. Then we'll see God heal the land if we do, do, do. And um, it's, it's kind of, I, I love that the last two talks have been, you know, Sam, a couple of weeks ago talking about us finding rest in God. Jesus' yoke being... Um, easy and the burden light. And last week, Kate talking about, actually, we're just preparing ourselves to be with Jesus. This isn't about us just, just doing. It's just about us. It starts with us being with God, with being in that place of rest. So um, I'd love to pray for this. What I'd love it to do, if you're able, um, would you stand with me? And um, as part of our response, I'd just love, us, love to lead us through those three things. So. Um, to, to kind of humble ourselves before God. I'm just going to ask Matt, just, just on the acoustic guitar, if you could just lead us in like a really simple bit of a song or something, and we'll, we'll just use that and then, then we'll carry on. But let's use this as an opportunity to say, I'm just going to actually just look up from me to you, God.